Let me read for you. Let's share together in the scripture that defines the events that we celebrate on this day, Palm Sunday, from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, John says, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, or in the Greek, Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it. Now, in a couple of the other versions of the story, he sent two disciples to steal a donkey, as the video said a few minutes ago. But in this case, it just says that he found one. So John apparently didn't want to implicate anybody like Mark and Matthew did. But anyway, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about his miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there is nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. I would have loved to have been there in that moment just to hear the Pharisees have to eat crow just once. You know, that would have been great. These are the events of Palm Sunday. These are the events that kick off Holy Week. Now, if you're not familiar with what that means, this entire week from Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday morning, Christians all over the world will be celebrating some of the events that occurred in the life of Jesus. And I would encourage you to find, uh, if you want to start in, in John chapter 12 and just read what follows, you can read about some of the things that happened to Jesus after this point. But there are lots of notable things that happen. In this church, we celebrate Again, Monday, Thursday, we will be gathering here Thursday night. We will eat together. We will break bread together and have communion for the first time in a long time together. I'm looking forward to that. And then we will wash each other's feet. I know that creeps some of you out. And some of you are tempted to stay away just because of that. Please don't. Um, even if you want to come and just participate in communion, you're welcome to leave after that. Or... You could stick around and just watch and see how it works so that maybe uh, you can make a decision on whether that's something you want to partake in. I will say this. It is one of the most relational things that we do in worship as a people. It really brings people together. One of my most early memories is of my grandfather, who's now passed on, washing my feet in the basement of the, Floyd, or the, the Wright's Corners Church of God. I can't even remember what church I grew up in now. Uh, but that's one of the earliest memories I have, and it really stuck with me, seeing my grandpa get down on his hands and knees and wash my feet. So it's a special thing. So if you want to come, come, no pressure. I just spent 10 minutes applying pressure, and I say no pressure. Friday, there's Good Friday services, and some of you will go and celebrate. And it seems weird to say celebrate Jesus' death, but really without his death, there can be no resurrection. Others of you will choose not to celebrate. Maybe you'll stay home and simply contemplate or read scripture or whatever the case may be. But all through the course of this week, there will be opportunities for us to celebrate those events. And this is the beginning. I have great memories from childhood of Palm Sunday. 
Palm Sunday to me was one of those unique Sundays of the year where everything didn't happen as it always happened. I went to a church where pretty much the same thing happened every Sunday. Anybody else grow up in a church like that? It was a small country church. Everybody that went there pretty much was related to me. And anybody who wasn't related to me, I considered weird. What I found out later was that it was all the people related to me who were actually weird. Uh, But anyway, it, it, it was one of those Sundays where we didn't do the normal stuff. Like, for instance, normally us kids were relegated to the junior church room down in the far corner of the church basement. And not the new church basement, the old church basement. How many of you have ever smelled an old church basement? They all have the same smell. After touring and singing groups all across the state and all across the country, old churches have the same church basement smell. I don't know what it is, but it's weird. We're trying to make sure to get rid of it here. We've tried air fresheners, everything. I think just might be the smell of the Holy Spirit. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it's just there. And we were always relegated to the old basement for junior church where we usually had fun. But this Sunday, on Palm Sunday, they would bring us upstairs. But first, they would put palm branches in our hand, and we would get to wave those palm branches around. Now, typically speaking, if you took a stick or something else and waved it around, what will most adults say? Stop that. You're going to poke somebody's eye out. Apparently, palm branches are immune to poking eyes out. I don't know. Because they wanted us to wave them around. And if I could, I would grab two of them. You know, if there was enough, I would try to get one in both hands, you know, so I could do the whole, you know, land in the plane thing. You know, I just, that was extra fun for me. And so then they would bring us upstairs and they would line us up. And I always got to stand right behind my older brother. And they would march us down the center aisle of the church while they sang the first hymn. And to be honest... I don't remember even what the hymn was. It was probably always the same. I don't remember what it was because I was so busy doing this, just having the time of my life. And the reason I was having the time of my life is because my older brother was always right in front of me. And on every swipe across, I would do everything in my power to smack him in the back of the head. (laughs) Did any of you do stuff like that when you were kids? Is it just me? See, one person, you, you all look innocent, but you're not. And we would have a ball. My brother, oh, man, he'd get so mad. And I just tried not to make eye. i just look like this. And he'd be glancing back at me, knock it off. And I knew he couldn't do nothing because we're right in the middle of the church. What's he going to do? So anyway, I'd smack him in the back of the head. But it was one of those Sundays that was notable to me. I remembered it. And too many of our Sundays in the church are the same thing every week. And sometimes that leads us to a point where we don't even remember what happened. I think we need to find ways to make more services through the course of the year notable, don't you? Our service next week isn't going to be the same as always. We're going to do some weird stuff. In fact, we might sing until Jesus returns. I've planned like eight songs. I I just think we need to celebrate. If there is ever a day on the church calendar that we should celebrate, don't you think it's Resurrection Sunday? I, I appreciate it. First service, I did not get an amen, and I almost quit. I almost went home. You know, it's just, They were just sleeping. It wasn't anything personal. But I really feel like we need to celebrate. So we're going to celebrate. We're going to do some old stuff. We're going to do some new stuff. We're going to do some middle stuff. We're going to do at least one song that I just like that probably nobody else will. But it's going to be fun. We're going to enjoy it. We're going to celebrate together what God has done. And my hope is that as we bring the kids up for second service and do something special with them, that it will become a notable moment in their lives, that they'll remember that Sunday that they got to go up and sing something in front of the adults. Isn't that awesome? Let's try to do more of that. All of that simply to say that I've experienced a lot of Palm Sundays in my day. I've heard the story over and over again. 
And as a pastor, one of the hardest things to do is preach on Palm Sunday, Easter, or Christmas. You know why? Because you're always expected to preach from the exact same text on those Sundays. And after doing it for 25 years, I got to tell you, it's tough to come up with something new. In fact, it's not even that for this Sunday. It's tough to figure out why that story's even in there. Because there's stuff I love about the story of Palm Sunday, and there's things I really hate about the story of Palm Sunday. And some of the lessons that some people take out of Palm Sunday don't even fit the story that's there. And I think sometimes we just stretch it. So here's what I want to do today. Today we're going to talk about some of the things that we know happened on that day and why they happened. And then I'm going to just share with you a few thoughts on what I think that means for us. First and foremost, here's what we know happened from the text. This is what we know. We know that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, a giant crowd gathered. Now, mind you, crowds followed Jesus everywhere he went. And for the writer to say this crowd was bigger and and more magnificent or whatever the words are, for them to point this out to us like they do, it must have been a big crowd. Now, there are several reasons that were given why the crowd was so large. First of all, it was Passover. And on Passover, there were many visitors who came to Jerusalem to celebrate that. Now, for those of you that are not practicing Jews and who don't maybe know what Passover was, Passover is one of the biggest feasts during the holy year of the Jewish faith. And so Passover time was a time of celebration. They would celebrate um, Moses leading them out of the land of Egypt and specifically God protecting them as the angel of death, the final plague on Egypt, came upon Egypt and, and they would put the the, the blood of the, over the doorposts of their home and the angel of death passed over those who had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and they would celebrate that event and how God rescued them from the land of Egypt. It was literally the biggest celebration in the Jewish year. And so everybody that could would try to go to Jerusalem. You know why? Because the temple was in Jerusalem. And that's like somebody who's Church of God Anderson wanting to worship at Anderson camp meeting. Very few of you will get that reference. But it used to be when I was growing up, Everybody wanted to go to Anderson camp meeting because they wanted to be in the place where where the movement had so much important history. That was kind of our our Mecca. That was our our, our place where our college was and where the organization started, not started, but where it was the, the headquarters currently was. And there was this feeling like if you went to Anderson, you were just closer to God. I, I can honestly tell you it was kind of opposite. <laughs> but anyway, we'll go on. It just felt better there. And for the Jews, Jerusalem was that place. It was the place where God's name dwelt in the temple. Now, truth be known, God's name had not dwelt, in, God's presence, rather, had not dwelt in the temple since before the divided kingdom. But that was irrelevant at this point. And so they would go to Jerusalem in droves and, and celebrate the Passover. Um, there were also people there who were just bystanders during the Lazarus incident. Um, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead just a few miles outside of town. And some of the people who were witnesses came into the city and started spreading the word, this man, Jesus, raised a man from the dead. Let me tell you something. You want to grow your church? Raise the dead. Amen? You raise the dead. You raise somebody who's been in the tomb for a couple of days. You get them to walk and talk and come out. I don't care what they smell like. You're going to have visitors the next Sunday morning. Amen? It's just going to happen. 
And Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He called him out of the tomb. And it's fantastic. One of the songs we're going to sing next week, you know, is, is that um, when he called my name, I, I ran out of that grave. And that imagery is so great. Lazarus, come forth. And, I, you know, a lot of people picture Lazarus stumbling out like walking dead kind of stuff. I think he ran out. I think he was excited to get out. Wouldn't you be? I think he embraced his sisters, and I think he embraced his friends, and he celebrated, and the news of that event began to spread. And so everybody came to Jerusalem because that's where Jesus was going next, and they wanted to see this man who had power over life life and death. What an amazing thing. The Jewish religious leaders crowded into Jerusalem to keep an eye on Jesus and to see what was happening. And as we've already seen, they were not happy. They pretty much felt like they had lost the battle that everybody was now following Jesus and they had no chance. Uh, There were also Roman soldiers. I would imagine that every year at Passover time, Rome would flood the streets with more soldiers because it seemed like every year at Passover, Jews started to feel that nationalism, you know, and and start talking about how God had delivered them from Egypt. And then they'd start talking about how God was going to deliver them from Rome. And there'd always be somebody who wanted to start talking about a rebellion. And so the Jewish, or the, rather the Roman soldiers were there in force just to make sure nothing got too political. And so the crowd was there in force. Now that crowd, once they arrived, were doing some very specific things. And these things had meaning that, that we don't want to miss. We want to make sure that we hang on to and that we pass on to our children. First of all, they shouted, Hosanna. That's literally a Greek word that we transliterate and, and when we say Hosanna. It meant, God save us or save us please. And it, it eventually turned into a term that, that was a sign of victory. It was an exclamation of praise that implied that the person being, it, it was being said to was ruler or, or leader or had the ability to save save those who were calling it out. And so they shouted Hosanna, literally declaring that Jesus was the one who could save them. Uh, Now imagine if you were their leader or their king or their religious leaders, and you heard all these people shouting someone else's name instead of yours. It was important. They waved palm branches, as we've already mentioned, which was a sign of victory. When the kings would go out to battle or the generals would go out to do war, if they won the victory and they came back home, the people would greet them with palm branches because they were a symbol of the victory that had been won. And so they waved palm branches. They quoted a messianic psalm from Psalm 118. In other words, a prophecy from the Old Testament about the Messiah, the chosen one who would come to to, um, bring uh, the nation of Israel back to prominence again, or at least that's what they thought. It was from Psalm 118. They said, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They were essentially saying, Jesus is our Messiah. Jesus had asked that question on multiple occasions, and people were a little bit hesitant to say it, but now everybody was saying it. He is our Messiah. He is the leader. He is the one that will restore Israel, and they had high expectations for what he would do. Not only did they call him Messiah, but they literally came out and called him the King of Israel. Now, once again, imagine you're the actual King of Israel and how that would make you feel and how dangerous of a statement That was when they were still ruled by the Romans. They called him their kings. I'm sure that it made the Jewish religious leaders nervous because their power, their authority depended on the grace that they received from Rome. And their wealth came from the position given to them by Rome as long as they kept everybody at peace. And this was not happening. The Roman soldiers, I'm sure, were nervous as well since they knew and recognized no other king but Caesar. Even Jesus 
did something significant by sitting on a donkey. He rode on a donkey. He sent two of his disciples to go into town and to borrow a donkey, not steal, borrow a donkey, and simply say, the Lord has need of it. And they let him take it. And so they brought the donkey to Jesus. He climbed on its back and he rode into Jerusalem. Now let me tell you something. If the palm branches are waving, indicating a victorious king, would you expect to see that king riding on a donkey? A donkey is not a mighty steed. In fact, I'm pretty sure there's a Disney movie where that actual verbiage is used, right? Shrek, anybody seen? Never mind. You guys don't have kids enough. You go back and watch the classics. Is that one of the classics? I don't know. Anyway, a donkey is not a mighty steed. What, what a king would ride would be what? It would be a chariot. It would be a white horse, a stallion. I don't know. That's what I picture. Certainly not a donkey. But what they didn't realize was that Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy from the book of Zechariah that most at this time wouldn't have even associated with the Messiah. Because why would a conquering king ride a beast of burden? I'll tell you what, some pretty incredible things happen. These are all of the things that happen, but what does it mean? What are the lessons we can learn from this? And, and today I just have really one for you, one concept, one principle that maybe we need to remember, and it's this. Jesus was not the king that they wanted. Jesus was not the king that, he want, that they wanted. And it wasn't because he couldn't have been. Because he could have been the king that they wanted. He could have demonstrated his power in the presence of the Romans, in the presence of the Jewish leaders, and he literally could have taken over the city of Jerusalem and given it back to the Jews as their ruling place, as their home base to the world. He could have literally raised up an army and conquered the Roman Empire right then and there. Imagine trying to fight an army that, that the leader of that army can raise the people who are killed during the battle back to life. How are you going to win that one? That sounds like some bad movie, doesn't it? At Marvel, I guess, are the ones that raise everybody back to life. I don't know. You just you can't even imagine it. But Jesus didn't do that. He could have raised an army. He could have overthrown the Romans. Uh, he could have been that kind of leader for them. But he chose not to be. He wasn't the leader that they wanted. And over the week that followed, he would baffle them by not being the Messiah that they wanted. He didn't make any political moves to align himself with the temple. Instead, he went into the temple and flipped over a bunch of tables. I want to know why that story is never a part of any children's Christmas pageant or anything you know I've never seen it depicted with children on the platform flipping tables over that would be way more entertaining than most of the stories we let our kids act out wouldn't it some of you are just smirking at me I don't sorry that's where my brain went today it's just there anyway but then he, he didn't do that he didn't go into the temple to align himself in fact he prophesied that the temple itself would be destroyed you just don't do that he didn't even try to recruit an army. He didn't weaken Rome's position of authority or even talk about any kind of rebellion. By the end of the week, he was so unliked and so hated that he wasn't just betrayed by one person. He was betrayed by the entire nation of Israel. The entire city, the entire nation, as their cries that declared him their king turned into cries for his death. In one week that happened. How awful do you have to be to go from please be our king to we want you dead.
Jesus was not the Messiah that they wanted. By the end of the week, they knew very well he would never be. They called for his death, a death that he decided he would submit to. And some speculate that maybe Judas betrayed Jesus as a way to force his hand. There are those that believe that Judas may have been part of a group of people that believe that if if we let Jesus get arrested for his crimes, then maybe he'll fight back. Maybe he'll push back against those who are enemies of his and and he'll finally show his power to the nations and be the Messiah that we've always wanted him to be. But again, Jesus chose not to do that. By the end of the week, the whole world had turned on him because he wasn't what they expected him to be. And you know what? I'm glad that he wasn't the Messiah that they expected him to be because the Messiah they expected him to be was a Messiah who was for Israel, but against everyone else. And guess who I am? I'm everyone else. And so are most of you. Friends, if Jesus had been the Messiah they wanted, you and I wouldn't have the opportunity to be followers of Jesus. He was not the Messiah they wanted. I'm not a Jew, and their Messiah was only for the Jews. They wanted a king who could lift them up and push everybody else down. Just as Jesus wasn't the Messiah that they wanted, I fear that he may not at times be the Messiah that we want either. As I listen to believers talk today and and post things and listen to some of the songs even that we sing and and some of the Christian rhetoric that that is bouncing around the internet, I, I feel like we want to serve a God who is for us but is against everybody else. Listen, God is for us, and you need to remember that. In fact, say it with me. Ready? Here we go. One, two, three. God is for us. But you know what? He's for all of us. Not just part of us. Not just some of us. God is not a God who is just for a certain people. He's for all of us. He's for those who who doesn't, he's even for the people who don't agree with us all the time. He's for the people who don't look like us all the time. He's for the people who don't worship under the same label that we do. The God that we serve is a God who is for all of us. For God so loved the world. Some of you know this scripture. Why don't you just say it with me, right? Those of us church brats that grew up in the church, we kind of had to learn this. It was the law. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Some of you said it in the NIV. I'll forgive you. When Jesus said those words in John 3 to the people of his day and they heard for God so loved the world. You know what they heard? For God so loved the Jews. That's what they heard. That was the extent of their prejudice, if you want to say it that way. They didn't hear the whole world. They heard God so loved the Jews that he gave his only begotten son that whoever of the Jews believes in him shall never perish but have eternal life. And you know what? That's not who God is. In our day, who do we interpret the world to be? Is it for God so loved Americans? I'm going to meddle just a little, so bear with me. I'm going to try to offend everybody, so just give me time. 
For God so loved the Democrats, the Republicans, the Libertarians. Did I leave anybody out? For God so loved Caucasians. For God so loved African Americans. For God so loved Hispanics. For God so loved Eskimos. I I don't know. For God so loved those who dress a certain way. Especially on Easter. For God so loved people who root for a certain team. That was mostly for Walt. (laughs) For God so loved people who are polite and pleasant. Or maybe we turn this around. For God so loved those who have nothing to eat. You see, God doesn't exclusively love any of those groups. He is for all of us. I got news for you. The world in Greek means it's cosmos, I believe. I didn't look it up. You can check me and call me on it if you want. But it means the world. Ironically, the Bible means what it says. For God so loved the world means the whole world. Is Jesus the Messiah that you were expecting? The Messiah that you wanted? And if not, will you still follow him or will you crucify him all over again by trying to remake him in your own image to your own specifications? Is Jesus the Messiah who came for all of us? I believe he is. And as we go out throughout the course of this week, maybe, just maybe, there is someone that we need to identify that we have not been good at showing God's love to as we prepare our hearts to celebrate Easter. God is for all of us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this story among many others that teach us so much about who you are and who you aren't. I I love this story and hate it at the same time because I hate the fact that Jesus was so terribly mistreated by the very people who wanted to make him their king. It goes to show how quickly our hearts and our minds can change when we don't get our own way. And I pray that you would help us as a body of believers that everyone hearing the sound of my voice would resolve in themselves that we will be the kind of Christians that believe that God so loved the world means God really did love the world, everyone in the world. We know that your scripture says that you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, not just the people that we choose or the people that we like or even the people that we can tolerate, but everyone you desire for all to have the opportunity to come to know you. God, I am so very thankful that Jesus wasn't the Messiah that the Jews wanted. But I pray that you would help me to be humble enough to believe and to know that you won't always be the God that I want you to be. And that's for the better. Because you are good and we can trust you. 